Hey, welcome to full release with Samantha B. Hopefully you'll experience one by the end of this. We are steadily approaching the holiday season, dear listeners, which means some very uncomfortable conversations with relatives about critical race theory, socialism, and the massive left-wing conspiracy to keep people from dying. Now, we can't cure what ails the misguided members of your family, but hopefully this podcast will provide you with a few intelligent and interesting talking points along the way. This week and every week, we'll be talking to people who represent the silent, rational majority in this country, who hopefully will remember to vote a little over a year from now. Joining me as always are my producers, Adam Howard and Svea Baron-Reinstein. Okay, podcast gals. We have celebrated journalist Yamish Elsindor on the show. Yamish anchors the Washington Week news broadcast on PBS. Now, okay, when it comes to traditional news broadcasters, they all have like famous sign-off catchphrases like, good night and good luck, and that's the way it was, or stay classy San Diego. If you were newscasters, what would your signature sign-off line be? I feel like people don't really do it anymore. Or I do I just not watch like the end of news broadcasts anymore? Well, that's I feel possible. like it's just like straight to commercial and they cut off whoever's speaking. Oh my God. Can you imagine if like, if you just kept watching and they were like, fuck all y'all. Good night. Like, <laughs> well, that's, that was going to be mine. <laughs> oh no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to steal it. <laughs> I feel like there's like a fun play with like the word news. I don't know. Like if, mm-hmm. If that's news to you, that's news to me. Or, I don't know. <laughs> that too, like, Fox. That's too Fox. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I find that really funny. It sounds very insecure. Just like, I, well, you know, that's, hey. That's it. Hey. Take it or leave it. Hey. I, <laughs> it's the news. What can I do? <laughs> what, what do you want? I didn't, I didn't make the news. It's not my fault. <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs> okay, Adam, what would yours be? Um, can I be earnest? Please. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I, I, was, I, I, I can't. Okay, I'll try. I'm not going to like start mm-hmm. crying. I just had an idea <laughs> that was somewhat serious. I just, I was thinking about the question and I, there's this John F. Kennedy speech I really love where he, he's talking about the Soviets, but he has this whole thing about how we all inhabit the same earth. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future and we're all mortal and it made me think about just how I feel like nowadays, like people kind of lose sight of that. They act like they're not mortal anymore. <laughs> and it's kind of the great equalizer. Right. And so I like the idea of sort of saying goodnight and then reminding people, like, just <laughs> night, a reminder, we, we are all mortal. <laughs> Maybe not say you're going to die, but that being, you know, essentially just remind people like, hey, we're, we only have a very short period of time on this earth. So we have to all coexist. Oh, that's so, yeah, so nice. Good night. And we are all mortal. <laughs> that's how we should end the podcast. That's good. <laughs> good night, fellow mortals. <laughs> or like I immediately, and I'm so sorry, and that was beautiful. But no, I immediately no, thought of, of The Exorcist. <laughs> Just good night. You're all gonna die. Down there. <laughs> and then you're you pee on the floor. There, and then you pee on the floor <laughs> every night. Every night, do the nose cuts with a full bladder, and then off you go. Off you pop. Show's over, folks. Maybe that's it. It's just you steal from the Great British Bake Off and you go, all right, everyone, off you pop. Like, there you go. (laughs) Good night, forever. Good night, forever. (laughs) Okay, that was, those are good. These are very good. All right. 
We are going to take a quick break, but we have Yamish El Center coming up, and you're not going to want to miss this. Joining me today is acclaimed journalist and White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour and host of Washington Week, Yamish Alcindor. Yamish became a household name for her dogged professionalism and intrepid reporting during the Trump presidency. She's also worked as a reporter for The New York Times and USA Today and a contributor for MSNBC and NBC News. Basically, all the media Donald Trump claims is fake, but is actually very real. I promise to take it easier on her than he did. Welcome to the show, Yamish Alcindor. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my God. I can't believe you said yes to us. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay. We're talking a little bit later in the day. So is this your downtime and are you dedicating part of your downtime to us and full release? For sure. <gasps> I could be eating dinner. I could be watching Law and Order. Oh. But I decided to be with you. Whoa. This is like, <laughs> this is huge. Okay. Well, I'm very, very honored by this. Okay. So tell me, what does your, what does a typical day even really look like for you? You're just one of the busiest women in broadcasting. You became the moderator of PBS Washington Week in May. So congratulations. Thank you. So what is... Like, what does your week look like? What does your day look like? Well, I'll tell you that I'm not getting buzzed awake by Trump tweets anymore, which is a whole situation. Yes. Um, (laughs) So now I'm waking up around, I would say, 637, checking out the president's schedule, trying to figure out what's going on for the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm calling sources at the White House to talk a little bit about what the morning is like. We have a standing meeting at PBS at 9 a.m., which is really a sort of editorial meeting where we talk about what should be done on the show. We pitch sort of segments and say, yeah, I think this today we should talk about the White House or today we should do a segment on Haiti and the kidnappings of, of missionaries. So I sort of am, am, am wearing a bunch of different hats, even though I'm the White House correspondent, because I, I, I do a lot of reporting on civil rights in Haiti um, and race. So that's sort of the morning. And then I sort of get my marching orders by 10. So I know what I'm working on for the show, but then I'm constantly still talking to white house officials. Probably if I haven't already begun my day at the white house, I'm getting to the white house by nine 30, um, getting to the white house, this great, beautiful building really means me going into a basement with no light. Right. Um, and, (laughs) and sitting in this sort of booth that I can't even stretch my arms at all the way in. Uh Um, but it's, you know, still an incredible privilege to be there in the basement of the white house reporting. So I spent a lot of my day there talking to sources, running around, trying to figure out who I can, um, bump into in the hallway because I'm also an MSNBC and NBC contributor. Yeah. It means doing a couple of hits during the day for MSNBC to talk about whatever's going on, whether it's infrastructure or the border crisis or all sorts of other things. And then um, by six o'clock, I'm, I'm doing a hit for PBS NewsHour. And usually by seven, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up my day. Sometimes I'm going to dinner with sources. Um, so I'll be going to a dinner with a source and then getting home around nine. So maybe I've left the house at around eight o'clock and I'm getting back at nine. But a lot of times at seven o'clock, I'm, I'm heading home to my husband. We've been married three years. So I try my best nice. to be home to eat dinner with him. Right. Oh, my God. That's a full day. And then it's like just law and order. And then yeah. just a full, you must just, you must crash hard. <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness. That what is, I didn't tell you about it was like, you know, fielding the 15 calls from my mom. Who's like, what time are you on again? Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. How much has it meant to you to fill a role 
that was occupied by a hero of yours, the late, great Gwen Eiffel? You know, it's 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 meant everything to me to to occupy this role um, that Gwen Eiffel held for so long. It's it's surreal to me that this experience that I'm having um, is is really something that I, it's it's an experience of walking in her footsteps. Right. Um, I was so lucky to have Gwen Eiffel as one of many women who mentored me, one of many women who sort of who who sort of. Um, invested their time in me and really helped me be confident, Mm -hmm. who told me when I was a young journalist whose name no one could even pronounce that you are somebody and you you are completely capable of doing all of the things that you're dreaming about doing. So for me, when I was when I found out that I was going to be the next moderator of Washington Week, I sort of got emotional and, and cried and thought about dreams really do come true. And they come true with this idea of feeling like Gwen is not only um such an an integral part of me getting this job. But also I think I feel touched by the idea that she in some ways is still, is still having an influence on the show because she's had such a big influence on me. Right. Oh, that is great. Okay. That's amazing. How did you two, how did you meet? How did she become your mentor? And I apologize because I don't actually know the answer to that question. Uh, It's a great question. The way that I met Gwen Eiffel is twofold. The first is that I had a hairdresser who would do my hair as a freshman in college Uh at a steep discount. (laughs) And I used to just talk about being a journalist and all her other actual paying customers um, were these amazing journalists like Gwen Eiffel and Michelle Norris and uh-huh. Athelia Knight, these longtime journalists who were friends with Gwen. And my hairdresser essentially said, oh, I know people that are already doing your job. You should go meet these women. And she introduced me to these amazing women. And so the first time that I met Gwen was literally under a hairdryer. <laughs> and I was, I'm like I said, I was paying about a quarter, I'm sure, of what she was paying to get her hair done. But here she was talking to me about sort of just believing in myself and, 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 and going as far as I possibly could go. And then the second time I met her, um, the first, second time I had a real interaction with her that was memorable. I was at a national association of black journalists convention, this annual convention that where all these black journalists come together in different cities and we all meet. And I walked up to her and I said, you might not remember me, but my name's Yamish, but you can call me Mish if you want to. And because I was so self-conscious about my name okay. and she stopped me and said, don't let anyone nickname you. Like, like, like be exactly who you are, come to right. whatever setting you're in your full self. And that stuck with me so much. So that was sort of my second meeting of Gwen. Cause I was sort of like, you know, I'm that girl from under the dryer. And she right. was like, Oh, I know who you are. And I know how to say your name and <gasps> let other people embrace that. And, you know, she was such a rock star, such a, a, a huge figure for her to have the time to say, you know, you're somebody and you can be exactly who you are. I was touching. Oh my God. What a moment. Did you, did you like never look back? You were like, okay, I'm, I'm your Mish. Or did, were you like, I'm still, I never I looked back. I'll... I was like, no. oh, okay, I'm never going to let someone nickname me again because I love my name. I love right. people being able to say my whole name. And I never really liked the idea of people nicknaming me, but I sort of gotten to this point where I had just tried to make people comfortable with me because I was right. such the other, I mean, apart from being African American and a woman being Haitian and having your mom make up your name in the 1980s because she was just in love with my dad and decided to combine their names. It was just, there was so much going on there. Right. Um, but she let me embrace all of that and told me to embrace all of that. Oh my God. How momentous. Oh my goodness. Okay. So for, so for better or worse, we kind of have lost the era of the Walter Cronkite type where there's like a single trusted news source. But do you think that there will ever be a time when there is, well, we can return to a broader consensus about what is fact and what is fantasy? 
Or has that ship sailed? Did it sail long ago? (laughs) Am I just yearning for something that truly never was? Perhaps. It's a great question. And I don't think I have a great answer because part of me feels like, yeah, we should get back to the place where we all think elections happen and someone wins and we should all just sort of get behind the facts pandemics happen, unfortunately, and we have to get behind the idea that viruses are real and that vaccines are a way to stop viruses from killing us all, right? Like those seem like sort of simple things that we should all be able to get behind. Masks keep us safe, right? Right. And and by the way, like Christopher Columbus, he didn't really discover America. People are already here and he killed a bunch of them. And by the way, there are a bunch of African-Americans and Africans that we stole and enslaved and, and forced to, to build Uh, all sorts of monuments, including the White House and the Capitol, right? Those are like demonstrably proven facts that we can't even get behind. Right. So I think if we can't get behind and get on the same page during a pandemic that has killed more than 700,000 Americans, I'm not sure whether we get back to the place where we could all be on the same page, especially because people choose their news so much based on what their what their political leanings are. Right. So if you're someone who's turning on Newsmax or even Fox News, you're already in a completely different right. sort of mindset than someone who's probably turning to PBS. Right, right, right. You're in your own silo. Yeah. Yeah. How do you remain? I mean, how do you remain neutral when people you cover are like openly repeating white supremacist talking points like replacement theory? How do you stay? How do you stay centered? Well, I think I stay centered, but not neutral. Okay. And the way I stay centered Uh is by realizing that fundamentally, I believe that racism is wrong and that black people should not be treated any differently than anyone else. And people of color deserve to be treated equally. So I come to my journalism with that, with that in mind, that foundation, I got, I got into journalism because of civil rights reporters and the story of, of, of Emmett Till, this young boy who was murdered in 1955. So for me, my foundation and what what grounds me is that I'm doing this work because I think that fundamentally journalism and images and video can, can shift people's understanding of the world can, can force Americans to look at hard truths, even if we don't want to be on the same page. So part of the way that I stay cool, I will say part of the way that I, that I stay centered is this idea that I think people fundamentally should have open dialogue. So people should be able to say what they think about race, whether you're a Ku Klux Klan member who wants to say that you should replace all of the people that are living here with white people, or whether you're a civil rights reporter or civil rights activist who says, you know, black people shouldn't be killed at two and a half to three times the rate of white people. I think that discourse should happen. Mm -hmm. And then we should all as a society figure out which one we, we, we think is right. Right. You've had so many just like public scuffles with the former president of the United States. He infamously told you to like be nice and don't be threatening. How do you bounce back when the most powerful person in the world is like being racist and sexist towards you within like a span of six seconds? How does that, I guess, how does that What are you feeling in the moment and how do you bounce back from that? So, you know, March 2020, April 2020, I remember thinking people are terrified. Right. Right. Like we don't know what this virus is. Is it airborne? Is it going to kill us all? Do we have enough ventilators? Mm -hmm. I kept thinking about like my family in Florida who didn't know whether or not they were ever going to be able to go back to work, who were living in nursing homes and wondering if they were ever going to see their loved ones again. 
I was thinking about those people. And that's how, in some ways, I didn't get caught up in the like the the like back and forth and anger of of the former president, because I thought, here's someone who's not answering my questions clearly. And it's because you might really not have the answers. But guess what? We really need you to have the answers. Right. Like, like this performative sort of let's all get into an argument. Like, I don't have time for that because the people who are watching this probably just buried their mother by, by saying bye on Skype, right? Right. The people who are watching this are the bus drivers who are risking their lives to bring people to work in hospitals or in grocery stores who are who are saying like, okay, this is all maybe a little crazy and outlandish, but like, do you actually know whether or not we're going to be able to test people for this virus? Right. So in some ways, I think that that resolve, that sense of responsibility sort of took over my body. Right. And I sort of had this out-of-body experience where I was like, okay, but my job is in the constitution. So we really need you to have answers. Right. And I think that that's the way I was able to stay cool. The other thing I'll say is that I've been doing this job in a black body. I've been living in a black body. And I think for African-Americans in particular, but I probably think that this is the case for everyone, that you've sort of had these, these moments where people have said something about you that you know not to be true about yourself. Mm-hmm. Whether someone told you that you're not pretty enough or you're not funny enough or whatever it is that someone was trying to say to you, you sort of had a goal in mind and said, I'm not going to be caught up in whatever's going on here. I, I have other things to do. So I also feel like there's that experience. Like I had the muscle that I had already sort of used the muscle of, oh, I have to ignore people when they're saying crazy stuff about me right. because I'm on my way to like other things. Right, right. It's actually really fun in those moments, like just watching like big questions, like watching interviews you've done in the past, how you're driving to the answer. You're just like right. always just driving forward like without you know, without stopping. It's actually very inspiring to me. I really love watching you work. I really do love watching you work. Thank you. Are you surprised that Trump is coming back into that? He's so powerfully still in our mainstream news cycle, or is this, does that surprise you or is it completely predictable at this point? It's somewhat surprising because January 6th was a whole moment. Mm -hmm. Where I thought, okay, this is an ugly, ugly end. You had Republicans calling the president, like Kevin McCarthy, who was the House Minority Leader, who had been a real Trump loyalist, calling him and yelling at him, saying, you need to do something about these people. January 6th felt like, oh, this is a shift. The Republican Party has finally found the thing that Trump has done that is too much even for them, right? You think about... Mike Pence literally having to run while people are saying hanging Mike Pence. Right. I would probably never have imagined that fast forward 10 months, Mike Pence is downplaying January 6th. Lawmakers are calling it a tourist visit. I, I, I will say that this feels very, very weird to me because I'm like, we all saw this thing happen on live television. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. And we all know, like, who did this? But, you know, that's that to me is the power of Trump is this idea that he's this Teflon Don who continues to be there. I will say that electorally, I'm I'm not surprised that he lost the election because there were signs because Republicans lost so much power in 2018 after the House that there was this sort of there, there was a there was a, a sort of glass ceiling to how much sort of just just grievance politics was going to win you. Right, right, right. Do you uh, do you ever because sometimes I feel like I go back and I watch footage from January 6th just as a refresher. <laughs> it's crazy. And every time I watch that footage, I'm like re-horrified again. It's actually amazing how it has that. I can't believe that he's still, I can't believe people are talking about him running again. I actually can't believe it. I feel like this, the notion of this is re-traumatizing. It's incredible. Incredible. <laughs> Do you, are you surprised by how long Stop the Steal conspiracy theories have stayed alive? I am surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. I am surprised by that, especially yeah. because, you know, I'm doing this job 
as the descendant of, of, of Haitians who fled a dictator, right? So my mother and my grandmother who raised me literally had to move to America because they were fleeing a dictator that jailed people in my family. Right. So for me, it's like the idea of why I'm even an American is that democracy works here. Right. That we have, we sell this idea that our system works, that we, despite our differences, we can figure this out because you take this whole situation with, with, you know, former President Trump and Biden and Hillary, and you take it to Haiti and someone's probably dies, right? Like someone right. probably gets assassinated in any other sort of um, setting in the world. So when you, when it's happening here in America, you think, okay, but our systems work. So people will kind of figure out like, okay, well, if, you know, Attorney General Barr is saying the election was not rigged, that there would be some sort of limit to supporters of President Trump to say, okay, well, here are all these people who were backing former President Trump who are saying that he lost the election. Right. We should probably listen to them. But for, you know, uh, whatever reason, for all sorts of reasons, um, there are people who still believe this sort of crazy outlandish idea that the election was rigged. And, you know, I, I think that it's crazy and sad. And I, I don't really, I don't even know what to say about it other than than it's, it, it, it is a a, a sad reflection of the of where right. we are. But I will say that I never really thought that in the middle of a pandemic, we'd be arguing about science, right? right? I never thought in the middle of a pandemic, we'd be arguing about whether or not COVID killing people was a problem or not. Right. But here we are. Right. Like, I think, I feel like what I'm hearing is that, that s- things do still, you have retained the ability to be shocked. Yes, I absolutely <laughs> Which- have is actually remarkable for someone who is so like deeply steeped in the news but things surprising things happen all the i mean yes what the hell can you speak a little bit about those the devastating impact of those images of haitian refugees at the border and why the u.s seems to have such a difficult time recognizing the humanity of the haitian people you know, it, it was a it, it was heartbreaking to see the images mm-hmm. of Haitian migrants um, at the border. It was heartbreaking to see not just these border agents using um, these the these reins of horses and the horses themselves yeah. chasing people like they were animals. Mm-hmm. But it was also hard because those are the that, that's me, right? When I look at those people, I don't think like, oh, they're immigrants. It's so it's so sad. I think like that could be me. Right. That that these are the people that are my family. This is exactly what my family looks like. These are exactly what I would be in that in this situation, but not for my grandmother in the 1970s and my grandmother and, and my mother in the 1970s being able to get on a plane, I could easily be these children right. who are being carried across the water on their shoulders of their parents. And so for me, I think it's it's deeply personal. Um, you know, there's an investigation going on into the use of horses and reins. And I think, you know, it's to do because sure. obviously that cannot be the way that we treat people, especially Haitians, especially um, Black immigrants, um, especially Haiti in this moment that where it's dealing with so much you know, a 300% spike in, in kidnappings in Haiti, um, a, a president that's assassinated, right? Like this is not just normal sort of poverty. Yeah. This is a, a country that is in crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think the Biden administration is scrambling to figure out what to do. You know, there are hard questions to be asked there. Um, I've been asking them. Other reporters have been asking them. Right. We've had two officials now from the Biden administration quit. These are not sort of people who hated President Biden. These are people who went to, to work for the administration, who were excited about doing work with Haiti, um, and doing and being the, the the face of the Biden administration's policies, who both quit saying that the policies w- toward Haiti are inhumane. So I think it's a wake up call in some ways, and right. also I think a sense it, it underscores that Haiti is is a real challenge here. Do you think that the administration is being transparent enough? 
It's a great question. I, I think that it's too early to say because we're still waiting for the results of the investigation. I mean, I know that they're definitely open to answering questions. I'm, we have, they have daily press briefings. So in some ways, I feel like we get a lot of information. The question is, what is what are they actually going to do? And I think that that's a complex answer because, now, you know, there's, of course, what the Biden administration wants to do, their policies toward Haiti. But also on the ground, there are a lot of different voices that, that want a lot of different things. Um, for the most part, people in, in Haiti, civil rights activists, they want a transitional government. But whether or not people want to see U.S. troops or U.S. Peacekeep, UN peacekeepers, those, those are debates happening in Haiti. So it is very, very hard, I can imagine, for the Biden administration to decide what they want to do when people in Haiti are still debating what they want right. the U.S. and others to do. Right. And meanwhile, we're still debating, like, what is science? Right. <laughs> we're still like, what is is coming? Right. We're like, really what, real do we though? want these vaccines? While like are Haitians sure? are like, can you can I get some vaccines? Yeah. Can I please? <laughs> Hello. We're right over here. Um, is there like you guys have boosters? Wow, we love a first round. Right. Can we get some of that? Right. Do did you I mean, God, did you think that we'd still be covering COVID this deep into 2021? I mean I remember talking to someone in March being like, oh, April's gonna be really tough. <laughs> And we were like, oh, yeah, April's going to be really tough. We we didn't realize it's more like the next two to three years are going to be really, really tough. Yeah. I had no idea that COVID would be um, that w- that we would stretch into this far. Who knew that we would be sort of still living at home and still, you know, for the people who are privileged enough to be working from home, that that would still be something that you would be that we would be doing. It, it definitely feels like we're in this sort of dystopia right now where right. we sort of are have gotten almost used to the pandemic, but I don't know what that really means. I think I'm finally coming to this conclusion that I don't know if we're ever going back to what pre-COVID life was. Right. Whatever we end up with, it will probably not be what we had before. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird to think that we were like living in these end of times and had no idea that like even <laughs> just going to a concert and like right. hugging your grandma was somehow like a privilege that was going to be taken away. Yeah, I feel like we've seen too many graphics packages of like how we breathe and how clouds of our like (laughs) dust and fumes travel over like supermarket shelves into the next aisle over and just go right into people's eyeballs and nasal cavities. This is horrifying. (laughs) Have we, how do we, like who is, there's so obviously so much COVID disinformation. Who, if anyone, is equipped to combat that problem. I'm not expecting the two of us to have the solutions to all of this, but I mean, what is your take on combating COVID disinformation? It's a great question. I think it really does come down to like personal relationships. Right. I think for the people who in my family that were hesitant to take the vaccine, it was really about talking to them and and not lecturing them, not making them feel stupid, but really trying to explain to them that this is not just only not only the 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 good thing for you to do for yourself, but it's also the responsible thing to do for the people that you love. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways it really is it's about personal relationships and it's about also people really trusting their doctors, not just sort of seeing ads. I it was I sat in on this like four hour focus group with some of the most vaccine hesitant people in the country and they were mainly white. Republicans and they were talking about the fact that they felt like who they really wanted to hear from were doctors and their friends and people who they knew. And I feel like that kind of is the case even for people who who are not white Republicans. When I think about, you know, extracting that data and 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 applying it to other groups, I think that there were a lot of African-Americans. We're now starting to see the number 
of hesitancy um, going down in, in the African-American community. And I think a lot of it was mm-hmm. sort of peer-to-peer conversations and people really having to, to, to deal with the fact that like the only way out of this pandemic is to get vaccinated. Right. Has the press done a bit of a disservice to the public by spending so much time emphasizing the cost of Biden's agenda and the legislative fight to get it passed instead of like what it is substantively aiming to do? You know, it's hard because I, I I can look at our coverage. We had a whole week where we were like explaining to people, here's exactly what's in these bills. Right. Um, I think it's really hard when you have, you know, a $3.5 trillion bill for people to even digest what all of that means, right? Right. You have a bill that deals with COVID, that deals with climate change, that deals with free childcare, that deals with community college, right? Yeah. We've never seen sort of these bills that are this big. Right. Um, these are sweeping generational bills. So I think it's not, it's not surprising to me that the average American can't list, right, the top 10 things in the bill. I think it's easier for people to wrap their heads around the idea that this is going to cost $3 trillion. Right. I think, so I think there's a balance that needs to be had there. And I know I, one of the things that makes me proud of PBS, and I would say that this is the case for NBC News and others, um, that they really, we make graphics to say, here are the things that are in the bill. Here's what's going on. Mm-hmm. But the numbers really matter because one, they are some of the biggest bills we've ever seen in our generation, but also two, at least for the $3.5 trillion bill that they're arguing with, that thing's probably going to get cut cut in half, right? right? So we also need to explain to people, okay, well, when you take $2 trillion out of a bill or a trillion and a half dollars out of a bill, what gets cut? It might be childcare. It might be free, free community college. The president has hinted that free community college is probably on a chopping block. Mm-hmm. So it's also, I think, important when you're talking about the size of these bills to explain to people, they seem huge, but here are all the different things that are in them. Right, right, right. It, it all gets blurry for people. Like, how do you take an issue that's that big and break it down in a way that people can understand? It's like graphics packages. But when people are so tuned personally to just like controversy and and like quick sound bites and stuff. How do you get people to like really dig into those issues? How do you try to, I guess, how do you try to break those stories down for people so that they really pay attention to them? Uh, I think there are two ways. The first is really what I talked about with graphics. I think like putting things visually in a sense so people can look at a screen even if they they see like a tweet or something to really just sort of see oh i didn't realize that there were 10 things in this in this package so i think graphics and sort of just like bullet points are really really important i think the other thing is to do deep dives on on things and put human faces to it so Mm -hmm. right now we're dealing with uh, a worker population where women are disproportionately falling out of the work out of the workforce because mainly because of childcare. Right. So the best way to tell that story in my mind is go find a woman who dropped out of the out of out of the workforce, who's raising her two or three kids, um, and and go talk to her about why this bill would change her life. Right. That to me is the best way to try to explain to people what an infrastructure package means to them. Right. It's explaining to people like, well, if you if you're not making the, what you want to make and you really wish that you could have gone to community college, here's someone who would benefit from this. Here's what the child care tax credit has done for this one family who's starting to get five hundred dollars a month in their paycheck and that what what that impact does for them. So I think it's also putting a face to it because I think a lot of times people People won't remember the details of a story, but they'll remember what, how a story made them feel. Right. They'll remember a character that they relate with. So I think that there's also that. Right, right, right. How do you feel about midterm coverage right now? Do you notice that, like, I notice that in my own workplace, <laughs> I bring up the midterms and everyone wants to die inside a little bit. <laughs> do you feel, or you're like, yes, we all, <laughs> everybody's in 
I think we all have like fatigue. We don't want to think about this again. How are you, I guess, how are you attacking? How are you thinking about the next year or so of coverage? Just over a year. You know, I think it's going to be exhausting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it's going to be exhausting. I think we're going to be, you know, all of the, I think, you know, that's why I think everyone's so deep into this Virginia governor's race, because it's sort of the first kickoff of the midterms. We're going to, and it's a, it's a window into what we're going to be arguing about, which is not just COVID, but also like, do we want to teach our kids about the realities of what happened during slavery? And, you know, should women have a right, have the rights to terminate a a pregnancy and and have access to, to abortion? I mean, I think there are all these sort of issues that are bubbling up in Virginia. And I think that it's, it's a sort of preview in, into the midterms. I think these midterms are going to be ugly. They're going to be personal. Mm -hmm. They're going to, they're not going to, I, I think we, especially after the, the, the Trump era, I think we are not in a society that's having sort of highbrow arguments over policies and how, how, what the, what the, you know, what the role of government should be. I think we're sort of, it's almost like hand to hand combat fights. Um, And I think that that's what the midterms are going to be like. Right. Just a total, like just a, just a knockout, like a brawl at a wedding. Yes. Just. And I've, I've once had a, seen a fight at a wedding and it is, it is. Yeah. Did you? Me too. It is something. <laughs> oh, that was ugly. It's really something. It sticks with you. <laughs> it really does. You never forget your first wedding fight. Yeah. That goes out, takes it out on the street. <laughs> what was that first? Oh, sorry, not to come back to Donald. I'll, I'll stop talking about Donald Trump. But honestly, when he got kicked off of social media, was that the best weekend of your life? <laughs> Where you're like, oh, wait, I can hear again. It's clarity. It was so weird because I bought an Apple Watch because I was missing news cycles. When If I woke up at like 630 because he will have like already cussed out the 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 leader of North Korea or he would have banned transgender right. soldiers via tweet and sure. I would have missed it because I woke up at 6 30 right so I literally just got for four years I was getting buzzed awake by tweets mm-hmm. so the weekend that they took him off Twitter I was like oh my arm isn't buzzing I'm physically no longer attached to something that is literally telling me that the president is speaking again it was a it was a surreal feeling just to just to have that you were like what am i is my watch broken what happened i was like am i dead am i (laughs) is this heaven or is this purgatory i can't tell you know you have talked about how you are like a super gregarious person i can totally see that and you have to be like more serious when you're on tv or in the white house press room is it hard to remember to like not joke with people is it (laughs) like what is it is it hard it can be hard sometimes because sometimes things um, are just funny, right? Like, I, I right. feel like, you know, yeah. as terrible as, you know, the, the pandemic was, and the Trump era, yeah. I also feel like there was there were times where I was hilariously laughing right. because I was like, this is like watching your house burn down, right? It's like right. something about like, oh, my house is on fire. I can't believe my house is on fire. And somehow you're laughing and you're like, what? Why am I laughing at my house burning down? But you're like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. What else could possibly happen? Right. And then like, you know, a hurricane happens or something. It's it's like it's like what yeah. in the world is going on? Yeah. So yeah, I think I like try to make sure that I'm serious, and especially you know all of the different things that I cover are so serious. When I think about the migrant crisis yeah. or you know COVID, it's like I there's there's these such heavy topics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that I think 
being a moderator of Washington Week and being an anchor, it's helped me show my personality a little bit more. Right. And my friends, when they watch Washington Week, they're like, oh, well, this is like the first time I'm starting to see you. Like you like cackle on TV. You like actually look like you're having a good time. Because if you if you give someone more than two minutes, you know, if we, if we can really have sort of these long exchanges, I can yeah. I can kind of be myself, which I think is this this sort of sweet spot where you're yourself while also giving people the news. Yeah. And I I think that that's sort of why I definitely love Washington Week. But it's also, I think it's made me a little bit more comfortable on TV because when I go on other networks or I go on Meet the Press, I'm a little bit, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit more ready to, to be myself. Right. That's great. Would, would you want to see a, a, an a return of events like the traditional White House Correspondents' Dinner? Do you think it was like just too much blurring of the lines? Although it was a fun party. I mean, I clearly want <laughs> to be back at the party. Right, right. Um, you know, I won what is a quick, like I won this at the Aldo Beckman Award in 2020. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I won it, I literally understood like seniors who had lost their prom. Right. I was like, okay, I finally understand why people are so upset because it was like COVID was already this terrible thing. Mm-hmm. But then when you lose something like, oh, wait, I really can't go and like joke with Keenan to take my picture and be like, right. I got the MVP award this year. Right. Like it's like, oh, that's not going to happen. Right. It was it's it's really sad. So I would love to be back um, at the White House Correspondents Dinner. I think it's fun. I think, you know, in my mind, I think that having comedians having fun it, it to me, it's like, how else do you cover and live through these times, but by laughing, right? Like, right. it's like, that's the only way that I've personally been able to survive is by finding some sort of levity in all of this. And every once in a while, it's okay to dress up, yeah, like really dress up yeah, and parade yourself down a red carpet. Why not? Yeah. A signature cocktail. We are all ready to return to this just a little bit, just like a hint. Yeah. Just a hint. I know you have a master's in broadcast news and documentary filmmaking. Would you ever leave? I mean, like, and I'm saying this is a crazy question because you're like just doing some of the best work. But would you ever consider leaving straight news to do, to some other form of like media, like film or television? Are there projects or areas of interest to you to just go deeper and do like a longer run? I definitely would maybe do documentaries. Mm -hmm. I love Frontline before, long before I came to PBS, I was obsessed with Ken Burns, obsessed with Frontline documentaries. Mm -hmm. So I definitely would love to try to maybe do some of that work. I don't know when that would be um, because I I do love daily news reporting. I do love sort of the the adrenaline of of going out there and telling stories as they're happening. But it's definitely something that I would love to do. I wouldn't go into like film or TV. I wouldn't go into like the uh, scripted TV because I think that there are people who do that amazingly, like you. Um, and oh, I, okay. so that's not something that I would do personally. I feel like that's my limit, but I would definitely do like documentaries. Okay. What do you, wa- what do you, what are you into these days? What are you watching? What do you watch? I, Mish, what do you watch like to relax? You said law and order already, but I bet there's other shows. Like, what are you, what relaxes you? So I, my husband, I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say this, but my husband got me addicted oh. to this show called the circle on Netflix. Oh my God, I've never watched The Circle. People are so addicted to it. I have to watch it. I'm addicted. Okay. I'm addicted. I'm still mad at my husband for like introducing me to this ridiculousness. (laughs) But 
Here I am. I'm a circle fan. It is true. Um, oh I watch Law and Order. They'll be, they'll be so excited to know that know. The people who producing the circle are going to be like really thrilled. Okay, Law and Order. Always. I watch Law and Order. I do watch like like a um. I watch like dis- like Discovery ID. Okay. So I watch like true crime stuff. Um, Dateline. Okay. Uh, what else do I watch? Um, I watch Queen Sugar, Insecure. Uh-huh. Yeah, can't wait for Insecure to come back. Mm-hmm. Isn't this the final? This is the final season, right? Yes, Insecure, Insecure is the is final fine. season. Okay. I'm okay. a big Grey's Anatomy fan. Okay, great. Um, those are just some of the shows that I watch. I got addicted to Grey's Anatomy when I was in college. I was having like a particularly rough patch, okay. and my mom was like, "You need to watch more TV." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" She was like, "You just need to like be like every other American and like develop mm-hmm. a good TV habit." So I developed my. Grey's Anatomy addiction and it's it's but you need like a show that has like a million episodes right. too it can't just be like you can't just be like oh it's a British series with six episodes per season two two seasons yeah. you're like that's not enough yeah you need 200,000 episodes right to get really into these characters right isn't it so fun it's funny like that your mom would say that too because like my kids are so they want to like the mostly they just want to watch TikTok and like those like quick things and I'm like guys Settle down and watch some TV. Like a <laughs> please. And when I was growing up, everyone was like, "You're watching too much. It's rotting your brain." All this TV, and now I'm like, "Children, sit down and watch Grey's Anatomy with mommy." Right. Tig Notaro was on this show recently. We were talking about our deep love of old people. Okay. Yeah. And I read that you wanted to be a geriatrician. Yes. When you were younger. Yes. Do you want to be in our club for people who love clearly elders? Clearly. I want to be in your club. A geriatrician. What does that mean? I was obsessed with old people growing up. Okay. My grandmother raised me along with her little brother, who was my grandmother was like 85 when I was born. Okay. My her, her little brother, quote unquote, was like 75. These were like, oh my God. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> these are like the two people I spent the most time with. Like, okay. like play dates, th- never heard of them. Like I was hanging out with the 80 year old and 75 year old for like the first eight years of my life. And I just developed this great love. And I used to go to the doctor with her and I was like, oh, I want to be like grandma's doctor. She was a geriatrician. I looked it up and then, and, and I realized how to say it. It took me a long time because I used to say geriatra or geriatra. Right. And it'd be like geriatrician. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I wanted to be a geriatrician until I realized that I couldn't actually do math. And then I turned into a journalist. Oh, no. Your hatred of math right. turned you to journalism, right. the dark side of journalism. Well, I have to say that I was, um, my grandmother was a huge influence on me. So I love all old people things. And I love like, and I'm deathly afraid of aneurysms because I read so much Reader's Digest. I only like read old people books and old people magazines. So I really like knew about all of the old people ailments by the time I was eight. That's hilarious. I had grandmothers are the best. I was super into like the Humana and ARP magazines. (laughs) (laughs) This is fantastic. Okay, this has been a great conversation. And I have to thank you again for like spending time with me when you could be off and you could be relaxing, but I'm gonna let you go really soon. But first I'm gonna ask you a really, this is actually a hard question that I'm about to ask you. What is, okay, what question have you asked in a press conference that went unanswered that you still want the answer to? Do you, is there like a nagging question that you're like, no, nope. I still deserve the answer to that question. Hmm. Or do those things stay with you? I think there are two questions. Um, one, I asked a question to former President Trump, 
And I asked him what in the world happened to the pandemic's office that was housed in the National Security Council. Never got a straight answer. Right. I still wonder what the effects are of that mm-hmm. um, and, and what it means that we didn't have that office when this pandemic hit. Right. So I think that that's something that I definitely would like answered from President Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for, for the current administration, I'm really interested in, in the tracking of breakthrough infections. So right now we, we track infections where people are hospitalized or where they are, um, or where they die. Right. And I think th- that more and more people need to want to know about breakthrough infections. Um, and I think that that's a question that I think like the, they say that basically the science is it's more scientifically sound to study groups and get like sort of the, the information from small groups of people rather than having, uh, rather than having people who are vaccinated sort of check a box to say, yeah, I got COVID even though I was vaccinated. But I still kind of think it's interesting that we don't really know how many people get breakthrough infections. Right. I agree with you. I feel like it's we're missing we're missing a big chunk of information by not studying that in a really comprehensive way. Yeah, I will say that, like I said, scientists say that they they think that it's not the best way to to sort of track it. And the CDC has told me a number of times, like this is the, the way that we're doing it is the best way, which is kind of studying these cohorts of people. OK. All right. Yeah. Well, still, you know what? I've joined you in wanting the answer to that question. <laughs> um, this has been so great. Thank you so much. I really can't thank you enough. It's just I just think you're great. Keep on doing what you're doing. Getting in there. Oh, I love watching you. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of your work. So I'm really, really I was I'm honored to talk to you and, and I appreciate you asking me to come on. Well, the feeling is very mutual. So you have a great night and thank you again. Thanks so much. Okay, I got to squeeze in another quick break here. Oh my God, I found that extremely delightful. She is the best. Oh my God. That was really fun. What she has been through, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. You're saying it. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so mm-hmm. uh, Yamish has made a name for herself by crafting excellent and accessible questions for some of the most powerful figures in the world. Um, if you were in her shoes at a press oh. conference, let's say you're a reporter, and you had one question to ask any of the following people who might never appear on our show, either this one or the late night show, what question would you ask them? Okay. So the, the first person... Uh, if you had an opportunity to ask Oprah Winfrey any question at all, mm. what comes to mind? Well, can I come to your house? You don't need to be there. I just want to look around. <laughs> can I come to your house? Can I come to your house? You don't need to be there. Well, like she, she's busy. I, I mean, really honestly, would prefer her around. not to be there. I well, so many drawers I want to open. So many cupboards. So many cupboards to go through. To sort through. I just want to just, I want to just see her like cast offs, <laughs> just like the things people send her that she's like, no, I don't <laughs> want free this. Drawer. The free drawer. <laughs> Who has a free drawer? I don't have, who's got a free drawer? Oh, like people God. that get sent a lot of stuff. I get, well, in my imagination, she sure does. Okay. All right. What about Ivanka Trump? Oh, oh. You know what? There if is a I question. If I went to her home, I would also not want her. Can to be I come there. to your house? You definitely shouldn't be there. I don't want you to be there. <laughs> <laughs> definitely don't be there when I come over. Uh, no, I don't want to go to her house. I don't. There is actually a question that I have for her, but I would not ask it on this podcast, and I would not tell you what it is because <laughs> it's a genuine question, and I can't tell people what it is. How's wow. that? Okay. How's that? 
<laughs> sneaky, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. What about uh, Mark Zuckerberg? Mm. Oh. Hmm. How so interesting. I don't think that he has any. I don't think I ha- there are unanswered questions that I would ask of him. Like my real mm. kind of like bigger ethical question is like, how are you okay with this? But I think that I understand the answer to that, which is that yeah. it's business first. Like, how do you live with yourself? And I think he lives with himself just fine. So, and I'm not sure that, and I think that other people have asked him that before. So it's nothing new. And I don't think there's an answer that would satisfy me. So sometimes you ask questions that aren't satisfying. The, the, you, don't, you know, the answer is kind of, it's never going to, like, is there a lasso of truth here? Like I put sure. the lasso of truth Let's, around them. I mean, well, we're making up all sure. of this, so you take what you need. No, as soon as you say these things, like I'm going over to Oprah's, right? Because you said <laughs> that I had this chance. This is all real, right? This is real. <laughs> this is really happening. Uh, okay. All right. I'll, uh, this one also might not happen, mm-hmm. but if you might could not ask, happen. Uh, okay. might not. If might you could not. ask uh, Vladimir Putin one question, what would it be? God, what would you, oh, oh, huh, what would, what would you ask him? I don't know what I would ask. I don't know, like, do you need help finding a shirt? Do you, (laughs) do you need me to do your laundry? You seem to never have any clean ones. Do you need help finding a shirt? He is always shirtless, isn't he? He's often (laughs) shirt, not always shirtless, but often shirtless. Yeah, I think there are some pretty, there's a lot of questions to ask him and he wouldn't answer any of them. Oh my gosh, I got to think about that. Let's come back to it. I mean, lasso of truth, you got the P-tape sitting there. That's true. Can't oh overlook that. Oh my God, I can't even believe I didn't go P-tape. You have it, right? <laughs> you still you can. We'll let, we'll let you change your answer. I'm changing my answer too. Where's the, where's the P-tape? I need to see it. And he's going to go, all right, it's over here. It's in my little dresser. I just keep it right. It was in my, in my desk the whole time. It's in my free drawer. I've been trying to give it away. <laughs> I don't want this. <laughs> just old socks and a piece. Just gross. <laughs> I hope you liked my podcast. If you did, let me know in the comments. If you didn't, please consider hate listening in the future. Seriously, though, please rate, review, and follow full release in Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Spread the word about this podcast. In the meantime, keep sending us your comments and questions to fullreleaseatsambi.com. They might even be featured in one of our special bonus episodes exclusively available on Stitcher Premium. Don't forget to tune in to Full Frontal with Samantha B Wednesdays at 10.30 p.m. on TBS, and we'll see you next Tuesday for another full release. This podcast is brought to you by Earwolf and TBS and was produced by Adam Howard and Svea Baron-Reinstein with IT and technical production provided by High Tech. It was edited by Julia Pott and hosted by me, Samantha B. Wait. Oh, I'm supposed to say this part. Oh, shit. I'm going to fuck it up so badly. <laughs> <laughs>